The Bible, uh, for me, is a guidebook. I think it's inspired by God, and I do think it's filled with inaccuracies. And you'll see things in there that remind you of yourself, and it'll make you really want to change. You realize that that Bible's not lying to you, but it's telling you truth. Just a, a storybook written by some people about some character. There's plenty of things that even if you don't believe in God, there's plenty of things in the Bible that can improve your life. I personally don't think everything should be taken literally. The Bible? Mm, that's controversial. <laughs> Thank you for asking. The Bible is still here. It, this book is almost 2,000 years old. It, it still exists for some reason. And to me, that stands out. That means something. It's not coincidence. I mean, that's a valid point, right? It's still around. 2,000 years after it was completed, was written, I mean, it's still around today. That in itself ought to be worth our investigation to determine and ask the question, well, is it reliable? It's still around, but is it reliable? How can we trust that it's the same book? You hear those questions asked all the time. Well, how do I know this is the same book that they had in Jesus' day? How do I know it hasn't changed? I've heard it's a translation of a translation of a translation. How do, how do I know that it's reliable? How do I know it's not just a myth that Jesus really walked the earth? We want to look at that. So this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. Usually we gather here and we teach from this Bible. We teach from it. We teach God's Word. We read God's Word and we teach from it. And to tell you the truth, I would much rather do that because I believe it does a much better job of describing me than I will ever do of describing it. But in order to answer this question, we need to talk about it. But to be true to it, I believe we also need to teach from it this morning. So I think there's a second question for those that call ourselves Christians, that call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. I think there's a second question to, is it reliable? And that question is, can I rely on it? Can I rely upon this ancient book to direct my life? Can I rely upon it to answer the most meaningful questions in my life? Can I place my life upon it and live my life according to it today, some 2,000 years later? I think that's the second question we want to get to this morning. But let's get to that first question. And I think before we do, it would behoove us to once again Go to Jesus, go to God, and ask him for his assistance in this. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we uh, do gather this morning to be taught once again by you. And so we do pray, bring new wine here this morning. Father, we pray that you would receive our lives as offerings and, and do anything in us and through us that you see fit. So Father, this morning, humbly, we pray, teach us and mold us and shape us more into the image of your Son. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Bible literally means books. That's what this book is, is a collection of books. And that's exactly what the Greek word means, the books. That's exactly what the Bible means. It's not one book, but many books. And it's not only a book, but it is the most published book of all time. There are over 6 billion copies currently in print, and there's 100 million copies printed every year. It is by far the single most popular, well-read, 
most published book of all time and continues to be so. That fact alone ought to at least pique your interest in what it has to say. If so many people are reading it, so many people have it, doesn't it make sense that you'd want to know what all the hubbub is about? So I think just that fact alone should cause us to read it. But more than that, I think there's things that we can learn about it. As we said, it's not just one book, it's a compilation of books, 66 books in total. 39 in the Old Testament, which make up the Hebrew Scriptures as well as our Scriptures, our Old Testament, written by prophets and kings and men that lived during that time, historical figures that lived during that time. In the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, all written by eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, his contemporaries, that wrote down his sayings, what he taught about the kingdom of God, what he taught about God and salvation. They were eyewitnesses, contemporaries of Jesus, and they recorded those words in the 27 books of the New Testament. And these books, the Old and New Testament, were compiled over a period of about 1,500 years, 1,600 years, from about 8 B.C. 1500 to about 100 A.D., over a, a large span of time. And not just a large span of time, but 40 different authors, not just one person scrolled away in a cave writing it out, but 40 different authors over 1,600 years. Think about that for a moment. 40 years, 40 different authors over 1,600 years, all telling the same story. There's one story throughout all of the books, and they all tell it. And the older books point to the newer books that weren't yet written, but once they were written and they recorded the history that happened, we see in the older books written that this is exactly what was said would happen. Just the fact that this story holds together as it does over this length of time through this many authors has to be a curiosity, doesn't it? Has to cause you to wonder how. Three different languages. The Old Testament written primarily in Hebrew with some books written in Aramaic and a few verses in Aramaic. The entire New Testament originally written in Greek. Three languages. 40 authors over 1,600 years telling one story. And it all holds together. That should at least cause you to pause before you make any statement about it, which should cause you to want to know more about it. So let's look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament that we have, the Jewish scriptures, there are no original copies in existence. The earliest copy we had prior to 1947 dated to 1000 A.D., around that time period. That's the earliest copy that we had. You know what happened in 1947? Dead Sea Scrolls. You know where they found them? Near the Dead Sea. It's in the title. In these Qumran caves, these Bedouin shepherds found these large clay pots in this dry, arid land, and they were just piled full of scrolls and papyrus, and they discovered the ancient biblical text, the Old Testament, and other non-biblical writings, and they were dated from periods 300 B.C. all the way up to the first century. They found in these clay pots, and you know what they found? 
they found that those words written in that time frame, the Old Testament, agreed with those words in the, in the earliest manuscripts from 1000 AD. In fact, that book of Isaiah that's in our Old Testament, they found an entire copy of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, dated to about 75 BC. You know what they discovered? That 95% accurate word for word with the manuscripts from 1000 AD. They were in agreement 95% of the time, word for word. The discrepancies, missing letters, misspellings. Nothing, nothing significant at all. Over a thousand years, that book, this book, hadn't changed. Historically reliable. Credible historians and scholars would tell you, historically reliable. What about the New Testament? Well, just like the Old Testament, we have no original copies. We have We do not have the originals of the New Testament, nor do we have of the Old Testament. But that in itself should not cause us to doubt its reliability. In fact, you take any other ancient work of literature and the same thing applies. We have no originals from Plato or Aristotle or Julius Caesar or Thucydides. None of those works exist. But yet we believe each one of them are historical figures that existed. And when they wrote, they wrote and told us things that actually happened. We believe their histories. And historians and scholars put those works through tests, just like we would the New Testament. And they look at three tests to kind of discern their historical reliability. They look at things like, when was it originally written? To when was the first copy that we have? What was that space, what was that span of time? And then they look and say, how many copies exist? Because the more copies you have, the more you can discern the reliability that you have an accurate copy. And then by comparing them, we can look and see the accuracy within those copies to discern whether or not we have an accurate retelling of the original. So let's look at a few of those works, like Plato. He lived in the 4th century B.C. Earliest copy we have of his writing, 900 A.D., span of time of 1,200 years, from the time that he wrote to the first copy that we have. How many copies do you think are in existence today? Seven. And historians say they believe Plato lived. He's an historical figure, and the things he wrote about actually happened. Julius Caesar. You guys read about him in your history classes? Maybe you've seen him. Historical figure, correct? We believe he existed, that he lived. He lived sometime in that first century B.C. The earliest writings we have... 900 A.D. Again, a thousand years between the original writings and the first copy that we have, similar to our Old Testament. Used to be. Ten copies in existence. Hard to tell. The accuracy. Aristotle. Again, another historical figure. His philosophy has affected our lives more than you know. Our culture more than you know. An historical figure who lived somewhere in that 3rd century B.C. Original, the latest, earliest copy we have is from 11 A.D., 1100 A.D., 1400 years. Between the time he lived and the first copy that we have, the oldest copy of his writing, but yet 
historians and scholars will tell you through those 49 copies, we believe these to be accurate, historical documents that we can trust in. Take somebody like Homer, and maybe you had to read his Iliad, right? Probably a very famous work of his. He lived about 900 B.C., and the earliest copy we have is from 400, a little bit shorter time period, but still 500 years. And we have 643 copies. Scholars and historians look at those copies and they say, you know what? 95% accurate. Homer is someone we believe existed. We believe he's recording things that actually happened. We would say historically reliable. Any credible scholar, any credible historian would tell you that. Now you see where I'm headed to the New Testament. Compiled between A.D. 50 and A.D. 100. Earliest copy, copy, 130 A.D., less than 100 years from the time the originals were written to the earliest copy that we have. How many copies do you think we still have of the original copies in the original language, in the one language, Greek? Over 5,500 manuscripts exist today in the original language. And when they compare those to what we have in this book, 99.5% accurate. Any credible historian, scholar would tell you this is a reliable historical piece of literature. That these people existed in the time they say they existed. And the archaeological evidence, on top of all the historical evidence, only proves it even further. So to say that this is a book of fiction about somebody who didn't exist would not be a very rational statement. It would contradict the evidence. It would contradict historians and scholars who aren't necessarily Christian, who wouldn't be theologians. They would say, you'd be crazy to think that this is a work of fiction because it holds up to the test as other ancient works have held up to. So we can see that this book is reliable. That's just one way that we can look at and see that this book is reliable. Now, I know that's not the only question about it. But we don't have enough time here this morning to go down every trail. You could spend the rest of, seriously, the rest of your life studying about this book. There's a stack of books ten times higher than this. If you want to delve into questions, more questions about this book that maybe have been raised this morning, on this card, on your sermon notes card down here toward the bottom on this side, I've listed three books that if you'd like more, more information, you'd like to do a little bit more study, you can find them right here. And I've labeled one as beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Three books. I'd encourage you, if you've got questions, if you've got friends that have questions, this would be a great place to start. Do your own investigation. Don't take my word for it. Do your own investigation and see if it's not reliable. And as Christians, we believe it is reliable, not just because of the historical evidence, but because of what the Bible says about itself. Paul tells us, as he wrote to Timothy, this young leader in the church, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training 
and righteousness. All Scripture is God-breathed. Wouldn't you expect that? Doesn't it make sense that it would be that if 40 authors over 1,600 years in three different languages were telling the same story, doesn't it not make sense that there is one author, really, behind it all? Telling his story, which is really our story? Doesn't it make sense that there would be a God behind that? How else do you explain it? And so we take the Scriptures as reliable because that's what the Scriptures say about themselves, is that all of them were God-breathed. Now, Paul's writing to Timothy, and what he's talking about here is the Old Testament because at the time he's writing, the New Testament didn't exist. There were letters, and they were continuing to write. But what about our New Testament? Is it, is it just as inspired? And I would say, yes, it is, because that's exactly how they viewed their writings. Peter said this about Paul's writings. He said, Paul wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures. Peter's saying about Paul's writings, his writing is scripture. It's God-breathed, as all the scriptures are. And Paul himself says, as he writes to the church at Thessalonica, that we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. All of the writers of the New Testament trusted Jesus when he said when he left, he would send his Holy Spirit, and that spirit would remind them of everything that he said and would teach them and instruct them in all truth. And they passed those words along to their followers, and their followers were faithful to write those words down and pass those along to us. And so we not only believe historically that this book is reliable, but we believe it's reliable because its author is the one true God who has overseen the writing of it all and the transmittal of that writing to us today. We would say that is why it is truly reliable, is because of who its true author is. This book we can trust in, but there's that second question. Can I take my life and rely upon it to answer all the questions that I have to direct me here? It was written 2,000 years ago, but can it still apply to me today? Times have changed, and some would say, so this word has to change because times have changed. That we really can't rely upon an ancient text we need to use our modern wisdom and apply it to this ancient text. And I would say the text tells us we need to take this ancient wisdom and apply it to modern-day circumstances. In fact, that's just what the Word says. The psalmist writes to us in Psalm 1 and says, Blessed is the one who, del who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. That promise of blessing didn't end at Jesus' death and resurrection. It continues today. That blessing is for everyone who will plant their life in this book, who will make their life's decisions and inquire of it every day. David says, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. 
that word there, meditate, means to constantly like muttering his word is one of the weak. Just muttering, you know, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And it's just something that you continue to mutter as you study his word. It stays with you. But there's more meaning in that word, in that Hebrew word. It's not just about knowing his word and memorizing it. It's about actually doing something with it. That word meditate with it carries this meaning of decision. That you would actually make decisions in your life based upon what you read. Based upon what it calls for you to do, you would actually change your life. Change the decisions you made. All of your decisions would be informed by this book. You know, this past Thursday was Valentine's Day, in case some of you missed it. It was Valentine's Day. And now you're just figuring out why your wife is mad at you. But Thursday was Valentine's Day. So Wednesday, I took my wife out for a Valentine's dinner because it would be much less crowded. And so we went to one of our favorite restaurants. And because it was much less crowded, we actually got an opportunity to talk with our server and learn some things about him and actually talk with him. And he asked us, he said, so are you celebrating any special day? You know, because it's not Valentine's Day, it's the day before. And I said, well, yeah, kind of. I said, you know, Valentine's Day was our first date, our first official date 36 years ago. And he was like, wow. And it's like, yeah. And I said, well, we'll be married 35 years this year. And he looked at me and he said, so, what's the secret to a happy marriage? And I looked at him and I was like, you really want to know? And he's like, yeah, I'd really like to know. Because if we found out, he was engaged. And he said, I said, okay. I said, really, Manny? I said, it's Jesus. And he got like his whole face changed and everything. And it was like, yeah, it's Jesus. Because there needs to be something bigger between you and your wife than just you. It's Jesus. And so I opened my Bible on my phone and I took him to Galatians chapter 5. And I read to him and I said, This is the secret, Manny. I said, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. <laughs> I didn't say that to him. Come on. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I still have all my limbs, my facial features are all intact. I've been married 35 years. I've learned. You don't say that. Not out loud. And certainly not in front of your wife. You don't say those things. But I believed what I said to him. Jesus is, the, is that thing that holds you together. And I would take him, if I had time, to that text. That very same text. Because as I've studied that text, as you read those words, I know you look at that and go, well, that doesn't work today. So how do, you, how do you address that text? You need to meditate on that text. You need to study that text. You need to see what the rest of the text says about this text. And as you do that, it's one of those texts as you come across it, you go, yeah, I wish I hadn't read that. I'd really like to forget what it is I read there because there's a big ask right there. There's a big change that the Scripture asks of you. That Paul's saying, place your life on this truth. Place your life right here. And this is how that text actually starts. It actually starts that section in Ephesians 5, verse 21, where it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The call is to both husband and wife to submit their lives to one another. Not because of the goodness in them, 
but because of the goodness in Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ has done for you. Because of what he's done for you, submit your life to one another. And then he goes on to say, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. There's something there that we need to understand that I was taught years ago. Paul's writing right here to wives because he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. He doesn't say husbands, remind your wives to submit to you. This is writing to the wife. And then he goes to that really uncomfortable place where he says husbands and wives. He's talking to husbands, not to wives. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ gave himself, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Jesus love the church? He gave up his life for the church. He died for the church. He laid aside all of his rights and privileges for the sake of the church. And he calls husbands and wives to love one another that way. As Christ has loved us. Husbands, he calls us to love our wives just as Jesus loved the church. And you can hear voices, right? Because I've heard the questions. But what, what, if, what if they don't love you that way back? And I can imagine a conversation happening in the spiritual realm when Jesus decided and God decided to send his son to earth. I can hear Satan going, but what happens if they don't love you back, Jesus? What happens if, if they don't do anything back? What happens if they just keep treating you like the way they've treated you all this time? What happens then? And Jesus is like, I don't expect anything. They don't owe me anything. I love them. I want them to spend the rest of their existence with me. So I will go, and I will give my life regardless of what they do. I will go, and I will sacrifice everything for my bride, regardless of how they treat me back. And he calls us as husbands to love our wives that way not expecting anything in return, not with you owe me, I'll do if I get, but to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Now you understand why that's like a hard text to read. But you know what? The truth of that text is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. It's the same truth that strengthens marriages in all relationships. It's, we're called to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And even if they don't love us back, we know that he loves us that way. And we will never love one another as he's loved us. He will always love us more than we could ever love anyone. He loves my wife infinitely more than I love her. And he calls me and gives both of us the opportunity to be Jesus to one another in the marriage. And he calls each one of us to be Jesus to the people that we live with. You tell me that doesn't work today? That's not applicable today? That's not reliable today? 
It's extremely reliable today. It's trustworthy and a, and, and a truth that you can build your life upon. And that's just one of the truths in this text. And so as a Christian, we say, yes, this book is extremely reliable. And if you don't understand that, you haven't read it. And if, you ha- if you've read it, you need help in understanding it. Because that's what it says. We can misquote things all day long as it's done all day long. But we need to know what all of it says and how all of it holds together and how all of it is a story about a God who loves his creation so much that he gave everything so that we could spend the rest of our existence with him. That's what this book is about. It's a story about the love of God. Not a book of rules, what you have to do to earn your way to heaven, but what you get to do. You get to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ, living by the wisdom found in his word. And Jesus himself says, you would be wise to put my words into practice. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he says exactly that. He says, therefore, any, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against it in the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus doesn't say if the storms come. He says when the storm comes. Because if you've been in a marriage for any length of time, you know storms come. And if you're in relationship with any other person, you know tough times come. The best time to start living your life planted in this book is now before the storms come. Before those trying times come. So that when they come, your feet are firmly on the rock. And while it will hurt, and while it will be tough, and while it will not be fun, you can endure it. Because he's with you and promises to never forsake you. You can trust in Jesus. And the more you study his word, the more time you spend with him, the more time you understand it's not about a set of rules. It's about a relationship with a God that cares for you deeply and wants more than ever for you to experience that abundant life now and forever. You can know Jesus Christ personally. And that's where we're going to take up next week as we conclude this series. How is it that I can know this God personally? We want to address that question to continue the conversation. And we want to do what the scriptures tell us to do is to not give up meeting together. So we're going to be back here next Sunday. And we're going to take up the discussion and answer these questions. And I pray that you join us. Come back next week. Amen. Would you pray with me?